0: If I could get your attention, we'd get started. I can't believe we're back so soon. It went by in a hurry. But we're here. uh, Since this is the first lesson, I'll give you my little speech again, as I always do in the first lesson, about what we're doing here and who we are because occasionally we get some uh, new students that haven't been here before. Uh, So our MO, our method of operation... Uh, Basically, you know, we've got 10 lessons. This is the first lesson out of 10. So we'll meet every Monday for 10 lessons in a row, hopefully here. Occasionally, we we get moved a little bit. But uh, we want to thank the church for just letting us use this room because uh, this is a non-denominational Bible study, you might say. And so, therefore, we've got people from every church, and it's open. Uh, Bring your friends, family, whatever. Uh, And this is not a church-sponsored event. It's just a non-denominational Bible study. So we've got uh, ten lessons in the book of Exodus that we begin today. If you notice on your table, call your attention to two things that are on your table. One is questions for next week's lesson. And we'll do that every week. We'll put the questions for next week's lesson on the table so you can take them home with you. They're just the same thing every week. There are 10 questions about that lesson. So therefore, you can study up and be prepared. Wouldn't that be a great thing to actually be prepared for something? Uh, And I think if you spend 30 minutes a week answering these questions, you will be prepared. So it's not that big a commitment Any of us can do that. Also, on your table, notice that there's a chart. And this chart is a one-page deal that illustrates the entire book of Exodus. Now, that's a challenge, right? I mean, it's, it's a long book. But I've got the whole book of Exodus on that one page. So you can see the whole book at one time, one visual concept on one page, and you can see, therefore, how the parts, it's divided up into the parts of Exodus, and you can see how the parts fit together. So, uh, to me, it's a very valuable study tool, and it, ha- it helps me uh, study and do research. Now, as far as who we are, uh, who are we, what is our agenda? Uh, the answer is, we're nobody, and we have no agenda. I mean, that's pretty simple. Somebody says, well, who's the president of your organization? I said, nobody. You know, what, what is your agenda? We don't have one. So, I mean, th- th- we're just here to study the Bible. That's all. That's it. We have no agen- agenda. Uh, my task is just to lead you in discovery about what the Bible says, right? So, we're just here to study, and I'm trying to lead you through it. Hopefully, uh, in... Because that's true, this is just a Bible study, uh, this is the beauty of it. All of our differences disappear. I mean, this is the only place I know like that. All of our differences disappear. Denominations disappear. Isn't that great? We just all are centered on studying the Word of God, and that's who we are. Isn't that awesome? So that's exciting to me. That's what we'll try to do. I'll try to leave my opinions about things out and just try to lead you to what it actually says. So I'll try to leave my opinion out. And keep in mind, we certainly don't want to know your opinion. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, And so you may ask yourself, well, you know, uh, I believe in Christ and I don't really know why. I need to spend much time studying. Why should I study? Well, the fact is this. I think if we polled everybody here, everybody would say, would you like to be a better person? Everybody would say yes. How about a better husband or wife? Yes. How about spiritual maturity? Like to have it. (laughs) How about, would you like to know your true meaning and purpose? That's a good idea. I'd like to have that. I'd like to know that. So, here's the two huge problems that that somehow prevent that. Number one what I would call what Jesus calls in Matthew 13, the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. So what stands between you and knowing what God wants you to know that's in His Word? The worries of the world, you're just totally, I am there too. We're totally caught up in the world, and we totally buy buy into what the Bible calls the deceitfulness of riches. So you're purely materialistic, and we live in a world that's materialistic. And it tends to distract us and keep us out of God's Word. And the second reason can be illustrated by the joke about the guy who constantly prayed to God, Lord, let me win the lottery. Let me win the lottery. And he prayed like this every day for years and years and years. And finally, there was a voice from heaven that came down. And God said, help me out. Buy a ticket. <laughs> that's pretty simple, isn't it? Buy a ticket. And that's what the God said. I have spoken to you. I've let you know everything I want you to do. And I've told you everything about myself. All you got to do is read it and study it. It's right here. But we never buy a ticket. And so that's what we're here to do is to... Get into it. C.S. Lewis said it another way. He said, aim for heaven and earth will be thrown in. But aim for earth and you'll get neither. (laughs) Right? And that's what it comes down to. Okay, uh, we're studying the book of Exodus. And, of course, throughout Exodus, the people of Israel are troubled. They're in a world of trouble there as you start out in the book of Exodus. And they're looking for help. Very much like this episode in our movie clip today. <laughs> okay, into Exodus. If you have your Bible with you, uh, open to Exodus chapter 1. You know, when you think of Exodus, you think of Moses, right? You probably think of Charlton Heston, because if you're like me, you grew up and you saw that fabulous old movie. Or perhaps you saw the History Channel's uh, version Uh, I think it was on last year. Uh, And when you see, uh, whether it's the Ten Commandments movie or the History Channel, or maybe you studied it when you were a kid in Sunday school, which I remember, what what did they show you? Moses is a hero. He's a great man. Uh, He's a powerful, forceful leader. Moses. It's all about Moses. Right? So the majority of people think that. I mean, they don't ever get into the actual Bible. They just think, you know, the story of the Exodus is all about Moses and it's all about the people of Israel. That's the thing. That's what it's about. But the fact is, it's a story about God. It's all about who God is. It's God's self-revelation. That's what this book is about. God's self-revelation revelation. He's revealing himself not only to Israel, but also to Egypt, the most powerful force at the time, the most powerful country at the time, the kingdom at the time. And now, through this story, he's revealing himself to us. Who he is, his power, his omniscience, and his omnipotence. And you'll see that as we study it. You'll see the purpose statement over and over again. Why is God going to do something? And He gives the purpose. And the purpose statement is this. So that all Israel will know that I alone am God. In another place. So all the Egyptians will know that I alone am God. So the whole world will know that I am God. That's what it's all about. It's about who God is. It's God's self-revelation. And even... The antagonist in the book, Pharaoh, even he is there to reveal God. He's there for God's purposes. You know, to really show God's power, he needs an antagonist. And so that's who Pharaoh is. He's like a type of Satan or something. You know, he's he's the antagonist of Moses and, therefore, of God. And so, therefore, God will reveal himself in the book of Exodus through what is called the Ten Mighty Acts. Ten miracles that God will do against Pharaoh in Egypt to reveal his power and who he is. So, uh, what does this mean for us, the application for us? Uh, clearly, you'll understand the history, but we need to relate it to ourselves as well. Now, I said earlier, typology. Typology is a big part of the book of Exodus. Everything is kind of like uh, prefigures or foreshadows something in the New Testament. It's really the gospel. The book of Exodus is really the gospel in the Old Testament. That's what it is. And you can easily relate Pharaoh as the adversary, as Satan uh, is to God, Pharaoh is to Moses. Egypt is like the upside down fallen world. Uh, So Israel is in Egypt and and being oppressed, and it's anti-God, and it's into all kinds of idolatry. It well represents the whole world that we live in. That's what the world's about, by the way. And I, th- and I think we all can see that and know it by experience. And Christ, uh, excuse me, Moses is a type of Christ. He's a Savior. He's a Deliverer. He comes from God. He speaks for God. So Moses is a type Christ. Of Christ as a deliverer deliver and savior and miracle worker. The Passover lamb that, that we'll see that God uses to sacrifice the lamb so that the first sons of Israel will be spared. And the angel of death passes over them. They're all saved through the blood of the lamb. So the Passover lamb is also uh, prefigures or foreshadows the, sac- the blood sacrifice that Jesus made. So... In the same world, as we think about ourselves, apply it to ourselves, in this fallen, idol-worshiping world that we live in, the adversary of God opposes God's plan for the redemption of mankind. And so God has a plan to deliver us from Him. Uh, We are like slaves to sin in our lives. And yet God is going to deliver us from that slavery, by sending a savior, who of course, is Jesus Christ. So now in the book of Exodus excuse me, book of Exodus, uh, what you have, it's, it's a masterpiece, is what it is. You have two mighty nations, Israel and Egypt, led by two great men, Moses and Pharaoh, the hero and the villain. Every scene is a masterpiece. You have the the growth of Israel into a great nation of people that will be blessed by God. You have the baby Moses in the basket, the burning bush uh, in chapter 3, the river of blood miracle against uh, Egypt, and all the miracles that he does against Egypt. You've got the angel of death. You've got the crossing of the Red Sea. It's just one incredible scene after another, the theophany at Mount Sinai, when God shows up and speaks to the people directly. You may not have realized it, but that's when the Ten Commandments came. God appeared and they saw Him, uh, heard Him. It was a, a visual audio demonstration of the presence of God and He gave them directly. It's the only time this has ever happened. God spoke to an entire nation of people there on the plains of Mount Sinai and gave them the Ten Commandments. Incredible scene. Awesome. So the book of uh, Exodus is, is just a masterpiece of literature, and we'll be going through all those. For the Jews, what's Exodus to the Jews? It's the story that defines their very existence. They come into existence as a nation in the book of Exodus. For Christians, as I said, it's the gospel in the Old Testament. And for everyone, it's the story on the one true God who saves and delivers his people. It's huge. The author is Moses. You you probably knew that. It's self-evident. You know, how do you know know, uh, who's buried in Grant's tomb? And that's how you know Moses wrote this. The internal evidence, it says that he wrote this. All through uh, the first five books of the Bible, including Exodus, we read that God told Moses to write it down. God told him to write this down. And so he did. Also, the other Old Testament authors, they also quote Moses and, and talk about the writings of Moses. And then in the New Testament... The New Testament, all all the authors of the New Testament, including Jesus, quotes from these books of Moses and attribute them to him as the author. So Jesus says that Moses wrote Exodus, is the point. So it's incredible that anybody would think otherwise. In the book of Joshua, you can see this in Joshua chapter 1, verse 7 through 9, Moses has just died, and Joshua tells the people of Israel who are getting ready to go into the Promised Land, Joshua says, you are to read and study and memorize all the words that Moses wrote down for you. All the commandments that Moses, from God that Moses wrote down. So how could you think anybody else wrote this? And yet, and yet... The majority of theologians, and I hate to say this, but even the majority of ministers will tell you that Moses didn't write it. More on that later. (laughs) Yes, Moses wrote it. And it is also the sequel to the book of Genesis. It's the sequel that comes not only right after it is the very next book, but the book of Exodus begins with the word and, which connects it to the previous book. And not only that, uh, Exodus, the first uh, seven verses, I believe, are identical to the end of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis ends with the family, the direct family of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, 70 people in all moving to Egypt. And the book of Exodus begins With the same wording, these, and it names off the sons of Jacob, and that they, 70 people, their immediate family, moved to Egypt. And so it's pretty clear it's a sequel to the book of Genesis. Uh, The date of Exodus is, again, pretty controversial. People, is it this date or is it that date? It really doesn't matter, but I will say that if you want to go with simplicity, which I would advise, if you look at 1 Kings 6.1, 1 1 Kings 6.1 dates the Exodus because it's the inauguration of the temple, Solomon's temple. And it says that the Exodus was 480 years before that. And so almost everybody dates the temple at about 962 960, 962 B.C. So that puts the Exodus at about 1440 B.C. Okay? So that's what I'm going with. That's the date I'm going with. That's the simple 1440 B.C. The theme, as I said before, is the glory of God. Save for God's glory. It's all about who God is. And we we have those purpose statements all the way through as well. So, look at the text. Uh, let, me, let me break it down to you real quick. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel. Verse 1. So, it, again, identical to G- the end of Genesis. Lists the sons there of Jacob or Israel. And then, verse 5 says that they and their families were 70 in number. So, at the end of the book of Genesis, you've got 70 people. That are, they're all Abraham's descendants and Jacob's descendants who have moved to Egypt. And they are given, because of Joseph being favored by Pharaoh, they are given their own land of Goshen. It's probably the best bottom land in the whole country. And it was given to the family of Jacob, Israel. And that's how the book of Genesis ends, and it picks up there, here. But in verse 8, it tells you there's a pivot. Something has changed in verse 8. Uh, in fact, two things have changed that are, that are very important here in verse 8 through 22. First of all, there's been a population explosion. They went from 70 people. After 400 years, there's like 2 to three million. So, they've had a population explosion. I think if you did the math, if there's any mathematicians here, that wouldn't be that surprising. You know, uh, it'd be a fairly normal growth rate for a real hardy uh, people, so to speak. But nevertheless, there's been this huge population explosion. So, they're now a very numerous people, a very large race of people, very much as God had promised Abraham. That has been fulfilled. And the second change is. That's very important. Is there's a new dynasty. There's a new dynasty in Egypt. The old dynasty, in, in groups of kings and the ancestors of kings, knew Joseph and knew how important Joseph had been to the history of Egypt. And therefore, they gave the Jews, they gave the Hebrews, they gave Israel a high place in the country. But now there's a new dynasty. And we're told, this Pharaoh, this king, doesn't know. And the, and the word for know is, uh, haven't, hasn't experienced it, uh, does not uh, love it like the previous ones, right? So this new uh, king becomes aroused. He becomes frightened by the sheer numbers of these Jews. And so, he, in his fear, he worries what will happen if there's like, an invasion and they all the Jews side with the invader or there's a revolution and they all go with the revolution so he says uh, I'm going to have to make sure take some steps to keep that from happening so he has a threefold plan there in chapter 1 first I'm going to compel them to hard labor we need some cheap labor anyway this has a double purpose we'll afflict these Jews so that we'll limit their number and we'll get all our stuff built. It's a great plan. Uh, well, that doesn't work. They continue to multiply. So the second phase is he commands the midwives to kill the sons. Well, they're not about to do that. They say, oh, yeah, whatever you say, but then they don't do it and God blesses them because they don't do it. And so now Pharaoh's uh, going to phase three, and you can see that in verse 22, last uh, verse in chapter 1. Pharaoh commanded all his people. So now he's, you know, going just from the midwives. He's saying, we're going to need the support of the whole country to get rid of these people. And so literally, verse 22, he's talking Genocide. Genocide. We've got to eliminate them as a race of people, and we'll do that by killing all the males. So he commands the entire population of Egypt every son who is born of the Hebrews is to be cast into the Nile River. And so that's pretty severe, that's pretty scary. But it's his solution to what he perceives as a real problem. In, in Exodus 2, we're thinking, okay, that's what the adversary, Pharaoh or Satan, is going to do. What's God going to do to counter man? that, to counteract that? And you have the answer in chapter 2. Moses, God is going to raise up a deliverer for his people so that... They will, just as he had prophesied to Abraham, they will be slaves in a foreign land, but at a point in time, God's choosing, God will bring them out and lead them to the promised land, give them the promised land. And so this is the beginning of that with the birth of Moses. And you can see that here in the beginning of chapter 2. His parents were both from the tribe of Levi, which is going to be very important to the rest of the story because. In the book of Exodus, when we get deeper into it, you'll see that God is going to command them to have a priesthood, a priesthood. And the only people that could be priests were the tribe of Levi. So Moses and his brother Aaron would be the first priests. So that detail is in here for that reason. And we see that the the woman, uh, his mother, Moses' mother, uh, conceived and bore a son. Which would be named Moses. And when she saw him, he was beautiful. Now, this is important because you know the story. When the mother, who's supposed to kill him, instead puts him in a little uh, homemade boat and sails him out into the river, where I think she thinks Pharaoh's daughter will be, well, it's very important that the baby be attractive. <laughs> Because can you imagine Pharaoh's daughter, you know, pulling up the baby and it's ugly and going, oh, yeah. I'm just kidding. I know all babies are are cute and beautiful. <laughs> okay, so she hit him as long as she could, even though she knew the command to kill all the sons. She, after three months, apparently, you know, he was getting active, starting to roll around, starting to cry or whatever. Uh, And so when she could no longer hide him, she made this little boat out of a wicker basket, covered it with tar and pitch, waterproofed it, and set it into the Nile River uh, where Pharaoh's daughter usually came down to bathe. And sure enough, somehow, by the providence of God, what happens? Pharaoh's daughter sees this cute little baby. I don't think she had any children. So she says, oh, look how cute he is. I've got to have this baby. And so (laughs) she even knew, verse 6, that it was one of the Hebrews' children. So who amongst all the people of Egypt would be able to defy Pharaoh's order? His daughter. All dads are suckers for their daughter, right? And so that whole thing works beautifully to save Moses. And then not only that, look what happens and the following events here in chapter one, you could say there's the great irony, the great irony here, because look at look at some of the ironic things. Uh, you see the the very daughter of the man who ordered his death saves him. Isn't that isn't that something? Uh, and then not only that, he was saved uh, he by random choice supposedly. His own mother was then employed. They paid his own mother to come in and take care of him, which of course she wanted to do anyway. Isn't that something? And then Moses would be educated. The Egyptians educated and trained the very guy who would end up defeating Pharaoh and destroying Egypt. Now that's uh, that's irony. <laughs> Let's take this guy and raise him up because he's the one that's going to wipe us out. You know, it, it's really an incredible story. And now in uh, chapter 2, verse 11 and following, we see Moses grown up. He's, he's fu- fully an adult. Uh, we're told in Acts 7, by the way, that he was uh, almost 40 years old when this event happened. So here he is. And also the, the historian Josephus tells us that Moses was well-educated, he was well-known, he commanded respects, he was even a war hero. And so it's this Moses who goes out to visit and look at his people. He knows he's Hebrew, goes out to see them, and he has a certain pride in his race, as uh, all of us do. So he, he goes out and he sees a Hebrew slave being beaten by an Egyptian taskmaster. There in verse 11. And so it angers him and in his emotion he reacts and he strikes the Egyptian and struck him down and killed him. And so he buried him in the sand trying to cover it up, you know. Uh, And he presumed, again this is from Acts 7, Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. He says, Moses presumed that the people of Israel would welcome him as their deliverer, as their leader, right? So in his, you might say, hubris or pride, he said, well, of course they'll want me. Of course they'll let me lead them out of here. Of course, you know, don't you know who I am? And so that kind of tells you something about uh, how Moses thought he could come along in his own way, in his own timing, and cause Israel to be brought out. Now, we're, we're the student, we're known, well, we know that God's plan is to bring Israel out, to deliver them. We know that, that's why it's called the Exodus. But what we find out now in chapter 2 is, it has to be God's way, it has to be in God's power, and it has to be in God's timing. And so, Moses is going to have to be humiliated for a period of time here. And so what I think, you know, Moses had gone to school in Egypt and he'd gotten all these degrees. He'd, he'd gotten his B.A., his M.B.A., and his Ph.D. But now, But now he needed to get another degree, a mandatory degree, and that is an M.H.A., a Master's in Humility Acquisition. And as I look upon this group, I can see that this is a master's that most of us have. Because we've been through the school of hard knocks. We've had the trouble. And so we've do- that's how humility comes. You know, you can't just say, I believe I'll be humble. That makes you proud. <laughs> how do you get humility? you got to get beat up. There's no other way. you got to go through trouble. There's no other way. And so that's what God was going to do with Moses. And so his life could be divided into three parts. The first 40 years of success, of course, by worldly standards in Egypt as the prince. The second 40 years by worldly standards will, will appear to be failure and humiliation by the world's standards. And then the last 40 years using his MHA, Masters in Humiliation Acquisition, he was a success by God's standards, by God's standards. He was ready to serve God then. And again, uh, in that book of Acts, Stephen explains all this, that Moses presumed upon God initially, and then later on, when when he thought he wasn't capable... That's when God called him. When he said, I can't do this. Who am I to do something awesome like this? God said, you're the guy. Now you're ready. Now that you have that humiliation degree. And, of course, why has this got to be all about God? Think how hard this is going to be. Think how hard the exodus is. You know, uh, two to three million people. Think of the logistics. Two to three million people are just going to pick up and one day, and leave their homes and country and go to some place they don't know where it is. How hard would that be? Just think of the city of Dallas saying, Okay, everybody, tomorrow we're all leaving. Think of the logistics of that. It's really hard. How would you feed that many people in the wilderness? You realize how much water they would need? And even if you had that much food and that much water, think of the logistics of getting it to them. Distribution would be impossible. It's going to require the resources, the power of God. So they'll get manna from heaven that is put down everywhere throughout the people. They'll get a river of water that will flow through the desert, winding around all through the people. This was gonna only be done by God, not by any man, Moses or anybody else. So Moses got his degree in humiliation. So let me let me conclude with this. Uh, in in chapter two there you see uh, what ends up after he kills the guy, he presumes he presumes that Israel will accept him and, and take him as their leader. But instead, they rat him out. They rat him out. And you can see when he goes to tell them, hey, don't fight with each other and, and y'all get along. We've got to pull together. They said, who are you that tell us what to do? You're the guy that murdered somebody and you're going to tell us? And so he immediately knows he's in trouble. And sure enough, verse 15 they tell Pharaoh that he murdered an Egyptian and that he's going to try to lead uh, Israel out. And so Pharaoh, when he hears this, ordered Moses to be killed. And so Moses becomes a fugitive for 40 years. His second 40 years, he's a fugitive in the wilderness. And you see uh, there where he met his new family. He went out there into the desert and he found a well, and he was hanging out there at the well, and he sees uh, this uh, woman who would become his uh, wife, I think. And he helps her. These other shepherds try to hog the well and get rid of her, and Moses steps in and helps her. And so he, he comes into, and he has a new family there in verse 21. Uh, he gave, the, the father gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses as a wife. And so he settles down there for 40 years with a wife and children and just hangs out with the sheep and the goats. (laughs) How about that? You were the prince of Egypt. You had all the power, prestige. I'm pretty sure he had uh, a mansion, you know, in Hallam Park. I'm pretty sure that he had vacation houses everywhere, had his own private plane, a G5, Yeah, he had all those things. And now he lives in the desert. Before he'd had all kinds of servants and people all around him, everybody bound to him, you know, calling him great names and everything. Now it's the sheep and the goats that he leads. So he gained that humiliation that he needed. And when he got it, at the end of that 40 years, God calls him out. At the very end of chapter 2, you can see it, verse 23-25, the people of Israel, things got so bad. The first king uh, died. A new king came in. He's even worse. And their pain and their trouble is so great, they cry out to God. And the text says, and God heard them and remembered them. Could he not hear before? Was his memory bad before? No, of course. He had his own timing. That's why he suddenly heard. That's why he suddenly acted. Because he said, now's the time. It wasn't 40 years ago, Moses. It's now. And so in the beginning of chapter 3, God is going to introduce himself to Moses. And you see the story of the burning bush. So here's Moses out in the wilderness, pasturing the flock. And what happens? Verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and Moses saw it, and it was incredible. And he went closer to see what it was and why the bush didn't burn up. Now, I've actually read things written by theologians that say, What kind of bush was it? (laughs) We need to go find out what this bush was, it's very important. So I ask you, what kind of bush was it? Look, any bush will do as long as it has God in it. Am I right? Any bush will do as long as God is in it. And he was. So God called to him from the bush and said, Come here. Moses walked up and said, Here I am. And he was told that he was standing on holy ground. Why was it holy ground? If you go there now, and you find, that's the other thing. They all want to find, because this is supposedly in the Sinai, they want to find the very place in the Sinai where this happened. Is that place important? No. The presence of God revealing himself in that place is important. And so that's why it was holy ground. And he identifies himself, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which identifies him with all the promises that were given these three men in the book of Genesis. So what he's telling him is, I'm going to fulfill all those promises that I made to your ancestors. And the time is now. I've seen the affliction of my people Israel. I'm aware of their sufferings. So I have come now to call you, Moses, to deliver my people. Verse 10. Therefore, you come now, you know, gird up your loins, and I will send you to Moses. Uh, excuse me, I will send you to Pharaoh. Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. So we'll stop there, and, and next week we'll pick up with the burning bush and all the questions about, it. you know, who is God and what's your name and... It's a continuation of the story. In conclusion, let me just say uh, what I was saying before. How is it even possible that this prolific race of people living in a favored land at the end uh, end of Genesis, how could they be induced to just pick up and leave their homes that they've been there for 400 years? How could that even happen? Now, Genesis 15 predicted that it would happen. But we didn't know exactly how. And and this birth of a nation, how is it going to take place? The book of Exodus explains how for the first time, the chosen people, Israel, the Jews, commenced to have a history. How they became a nation. A land was born, a nation was brought forth all at once. The Judeo-Christian ethic, our religion, has its roots there. And so again, what does this mean for us? Uh, He called the Hebrews out of there. But what what does that mean to us? As I said before, the typology of it, Egypt well, well represents the fallen world we live in. The world we live in is full of false religions, meaninglessness, supposed pleasures, and rejection of God. And that was Egypt. But our world's just the same. And maybe you have longed to be free of this world and all the trouble, the pain, the suffering, and all the evil. Maybe you'd like to be free of it. You also seek deliverance. You seek meaning and purpose. I mean, who doesn't? Well, God is calling us out as well. Are there obstacles to being called out? Yeah. Is there a Red Sea that blocks our way? Yeah. And by yourself, you can't do it. That's why it's got to be all about God doing it. God is offering to save us all, to deliver us all from the problems we have. Whatever the obstacles are, Christ will overcome them. He's been sent by God, just like Moses was sent to Israel in Egypt. How can you get out of Egypt into the promised land? God will deliver you. He's offered to do it. He's given the means and the basis for it to happen. And God is with you and wants you to come and be delivered. He has sent his son Jesus to deliver us all. We just have to come and turn our lives over to him. Be saved from what we are slaves to which is sin and this fallen world. And God has provided the means and basis to accomplish that in Christ our Savior. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with these stories. They're so awesome. They're so wonderful. There's so much there. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with us in this study during the next 10 weeks and, and uh, help us just... Uh, just glean all kinds of uh, not only knowledge but also application to ourselves as we go through it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.